We're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in chapter 5. We're in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. This eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle is found in Exodus uh, 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy chapter 19. In those passages you read, it was given as a rule to regulate the decisions of judges. They were able to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a tooth for a tooth, excuse me, and uh, even it says to inflict burning for burning. So I guess a lot of uh, burning was going on in those days. <laughs> a lot of uh, people burning each other. So uh, rabbis in Jesus' day taught that the eye for an eye law meant you were obligated to avenge yourself of a personal insult or attack brought against you. That's the interesting thing about law. Once it's put down, then it's subject to interpretation. And so, you know, God says, well, let's do an eye for an eye. And they said, okay, well, we have to do that then. So if you poke my eye out, I'm going to have to poke your eye out. Uh, Jesus rightly disallows the application of this law in personal relationships. It was intended to guide the judges in the law courts of Israel, not to guide our personal relationships. This law was meant to be a check, actually, to our desire to revenge, not a license for revenge. Our tendency is to want to do more to the offending party than what they have done to us. Uh, if you've ever watched any kind of mafia movie, uh, you know that you know it's, there has to be retaliation and uh, revenge. And, uh, you know, the Israelites, uh, tribal peoples, they're just like that, you know. In fact, they had, there was always in, in Israel, there was always an avenger of blood in your family. There was always a guido. Uh, I don't know what the Jewish version of guido was, but <clears throat> there was always a Luca Bracci who was, you know, if somebody was killed, then he would go and kill somebody in the other tribe. That's why they had the cities of refuge where they could determine whether it was murder or manslaughter and those kinds of things. And so, hey, I'm all over that, man, that's great. But Yeah, it, well, either that or she got really, well, burned, you know. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, the law meant to check our desire for revenge. Uh, we cannot punish from a motive of revenge, but only from a motive of justice. And, uh, you know, we want to uh, bear that in mind. Uh, here's a quote. A guy named Thompson says, Far from encouraging vengeance, the law limits vengeance and stands as a guide for a judge as he fixes a penalty suited to the crime. Principle was thus not license or vengeance, but a guarantee of justice. And of course, probably most of us would agree that one of the problems with our justice system today is that penalties don't really fit the crime. Uh, we've, <coughs> in many cases, become far too lenient. Jesus quotes this passage in his teaching on the true interpretation of the law. 
He does not say that the eye for an eye principle is wrong. He simply condemns the use of it to make it an obligation to exact revenge against someone who has personally offended me. The whole point, I think, of this passage and other passages in the Sermon on the Mount is uh, to think about what God might want you to do rather than always exercising your rights. Uh, as I'll say at the end, as Christians, we sometimes have the right to be wronged if it can create a greater good or preach the gospel. And uh, you, you, know, you quite obviously see this in the life of Jesus. You see it in the life of Paul, uh, Peter, all the apostles, any biographical uh, sketches that you have of, of Bible characters, uh, almost all of them at some point exercise their right to be wronged in order for a greater good to come out of it. And so having put the law back into perspective, the Lord then discusses how we ought to treat those who personally offend us. So the rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're saying, hey, you, you go ahead and get revenge. If you go, I, These guys would be great guys to counsel with, really. You know, I mean, if, you, if you're in a bad mood, somebody's poked you in the eye and say, what should I do? And they, hey, go out there and hit them back. You know, and, and uh, so Jesus is saying, well, you know, that was okay for the judges. If you're going to go to court, that's one thing. But uh, how about we take a step back and, and gain a greater perspective on how you might use the situation to minister to somebody? And so in verse 39, he says, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, resist means to stand against. Jesus might have in mind our general attitude when we're being mistreated. While a first response might be to react against it and somehow defend ourselves, we might want to consider the greater opportunity for reflecting the gospel and our patience in bearing mistreatment. Often our circumstances give us the chance to show the difference Jesus Christ makes in our lives. So, uh, you know, if, if somebody out there is going to treat me a certain way and treat others a certain way, my reaction might want to be different than the reaction of an unbeliever. Otherwise, what difference does it make? How am I preaching the gospel? How am I representing Christ if I react just like everybody else reacts uh, by punching them back or filing a lawsuit or those kinds of things? Not that those things are never possible or always wrong, but it, Jesus wants us to pause and think about what we're going to do. And then he goes on to give some specific situations that were applicable and apropos to the Jewish culture of his day. In verse 39, he goes on and he says, Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, the Lord himself would be slapped on the cheek, but patiently bear it later on in his career in John chapter 18. He was not suggesting that you would never defend yourself or your loved ones this isn't really a teaching about pacifism. Uh, people, you know, take this and pull it out of context and say that, well, if you're physically assaulted, you just are to bear it and that's just the way it is. But it's interesting to me, I was thinking about this, a real physical slap in the face is usually not a very severe blow. Uh, it, it, you know, he doesn't say if somebody... Uh, karate chops you to the neck or if you get hit in the solar plexus or if you know Jet Li comes out and wants to tear your throat out then you know let him do it he says if you get slapped in the face uh, turn the other cheek and it's interesting because that's how we use this phrase we talk about things being a slap in the face and we mean it as an insult it, to us that is a euphemism now for being insulted 
because it's serious, it's a violation of personal space, but it's, no, it's, it's, it's not that big a deal. It's not an assault. And so I think Jesus is talking about something far different than uh, a full-blown assault. He's talking about being insulted, which sometimes involves being slapped in the face, but uh, more figurative than literal. This is what he has in mind. We can take a slap in the face. We can absorb insults because there's a greater good to promote, and that is the gospel. And so in verse 40, he says, If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. The ordinary outfit of a Jew consisted of an inner garment, an outer garment, and uh, what, what they called a girdle, which was, we as men would call a belt, of course, to be manly, and sandals. <laughs> the inner garment here, called the tunic, was made commonly of linen, and it encircled the whole body, extending down to the knees. The coat was uh, extended to the neck and had long or short sleeves. Over this was commonly worn an outer garment, uh, here called the cloak. It was made commonly nearly square of different sizes and uh, wrapped around the body and was thrown off when labor was performed. So it was a normal thing for this extra tunic of a person to be given as collateral or a bond during a court proceeding. It was, we don't think of our clothes as being that valuable unless you're wearing Tommy Bahama or Nat Nass shirts. Or, I mean, some clothes are fairly expensive, you know. Uh, it's a whole line of shirts that, that I like that are like $150 each. You know, I don't, I don't have any of them, but, but I, you know, I can like them from a distance. But uh, anyway, uh, but in those days, you know, people, you know, your, your cloak was a, a personal property that could be given as collateral. Uh, and sometimes in a serious offense, a person's cloak was even required by the courts to be given to the party bringing a lawsuit. However, God had laid down rules regarding this. In Exodus, let me just read to you. This is from Exodus 22, 26 and 27. It says, If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge or as collateral, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. And so, so you know, this is one of those situations where we, we don't really understand their customs and uh, you know, we're not given to, well, here, take my coat, hold on to my leather jacket, you know, as collateral. We just don't do that today. But they did. And so a person had a right to get his cloak back before sundown. A person's right was that his cloak could not be taken away from him permanently. It was, it was very important. So the picture through this illustration that Jesus is giving is simply this. As a Christian, even though you have rights, you shouldn't demand that you receive them. And that's what he's really saying. He's saying, you know, you have the right, if you gave your cloak as collateral, to get it back by sundown, he goes, but maybe you want to give that up in certain situations. Paul the Apostle, I'd like to use him as an example because there are times, few times in his life, where he uh, invoked his rights. Most of the time he gave up his rights, but when he did invoke his rights as a citizen, for example, of Rome, it was always for the furthering of the gospel. He did it in Philippi after they had beaten him and uh, Silas, left him in jail overnight. Could have done it before that happened, but he waited. Uh, and then the next morning he said, you know, I probably should have told you guys I'm a Roman citizen before you beat me up because you violated my rights and you're in trouble now. And uh, we can only speculate as to why he did that. Uh, and the speculation is that he then 
put a fear into those officials so that the fledgling church would be kind of hands off, you know, to those guys. Later on, he appealed to Caesar uh, in his arrest, which was the right of every Roman citizen. You could say, hey, forget all these lower courts. I want to go to Caesar and state my case to him. No one really wanted to do that because Caesar just had everybody executed. He didn't really have time to, you know, it wasn't like he was going to be fair. Uh, but Paul appealed to Caesar because he knew it would get him to Rome. And, the, and God had told him that he was going to Rome and he evidently led by the Holy Spirit, felt like this was the way to get passage to Rome and to have about three years of ministry along the way. And so, so it's okay to have your rights and to exercise them, but even then we're thinking about how they fit into the bigger picture. Uh, so you have rights, but you don't necessarily have to demand them. William Barclay makes an insightful application of this in his commentary, and I quote, he says, Churches are tragically full of people who demand their rights officials whose territory has been invaded, office bearers who have not been accorded their proper place, courts which do business with a manual of practice and procedure on the table all the time, lest anyone's rights should be invaded. People like that have not even begun to see what Christianity is. The Christian thinks not of his rights, but of his duties, not of his privileges, but of his responsibilities. And Jesus says in verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. It was a common practice for a Roman soldier to force or compel a Jew to supply food or provide lodging or carry his baggage. Uh, sometimes this was done in a kind way, but most often it was done in a demeaning way that was met by disgust, anger, and grudging service on the part of the Jewish person. When I read this, I always think of scenes in movies where cops pull people out of their car and say, I need your car, you know, and of course it's always a Maserati or a Ferrari or some really cool car, you know, and stuff. There's, uh, yeah, there's an example of this in the Good Friday account where Simon of Cyrene is compelled or forced to carry Jesus' cross by the Roman soldiers. They're, you know, proceeding up the Via Dolorosa there. Jesus is stumbling under the weight probably of just the cross beam, and so they, they hey, you, yeah, you, Simon of Cyrene, you know, get over here. And uh, they were perfectly within their rights to do that. Uh, obviously, people didn't uh, like this. Uh, I, I suppose if you were at Save Mart and saw a Roman soldier, you'd go down the other aisle, you know, and, and hide from them because you never knew what they were going to conscript you for. The principle is this. Don't be thinking about your liberty, uh, your freedom, or your convenience. Uh, so if a Roman soldier comes to you when you're minding your own business and you're tired, you've had a bad day at the office, that soldier forces you to carry his suitcase or burden for a mile, Jesus is saying don't be bitter, don't be resentful, don't pout. Instead do it with cheerfulness and offer to carry it an extra mile if the soldier needs your help. Uh, you know, Paul and the other apostles would see this as an opportunity to share Christ. You know, they'd say, oh yeah, you know. In fact, I can see some early Christians going up to Romans and say, can I carry your spear for a while? You know, can I help you in any way? And, and turning it into an opportunity for ministry. Verse 42, give to him who asks you. From him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. During every seventh year, all debts were to be canceled that were owed to a fellow Jew. This was how God watched over the poor of his chosen people. I think it's a great system. Uh, I'm all for it with mortgages, that sounds good to me, but 
our fear of losing what was out of fear of losing what was rightfully theirs, the Pharisees of Jesus' day made a practice not to loan any money or to lend any financial help during the sixth or seventh year because they were afraid of not getting it back. Uh, and it was a shrewd move financially, but it was it was not in the spirit of the law. Uh, and and so this is what Jesus is addressing. Your rights to being a shrewd business person pale in, compor- uh, in importance when compared to the vital principle of giving up your rights in order to advance his kingdom. So that's how this verse fits in. It's like, hey, you know, I really need your help. Uh, man, I'd love to help you, but it's the sixth year, and if I help you, I'm not going to get as much interest as I will if I wait another year, so I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, the Lord is saying, don't think that way. Again, give up your rights even uh, in that kind of a situation. And so, in conclusion, you have the right to be wronged and thus represent Jesus to those who are mistreating you or taking advantage of you. Uh, We live in a great country with lots of legal uh, rights and solutions that I think all of us should be aware of and ready to take advantage of. Uh, All that the Lord is telling us is in these day-to-day especially day-to-day situations with co-workers and people that we know where we are being uh, personally mistreated, take a minute to think about what your best reaction would be, what your best spiritual reaction would be. The Lord doesn't say you're not being mistreated. You, I mean, it's, it's, you are. You're very definitely being slapped in the face, whether literally or uh, figuratively. He says, but you might want to do something different than you would have done before you were a Christian in order to turn it into an opportunity to minister. You might want to uh, be used in that way rather than just react the same way the unbeliever would except without cuss words, uh, which is pretty... You know, Christians have a nicer way of suing people or writing out grievances. or And they usually say things like, well, I really love you, but... Uh, you shouldn't have done that, you know, kind of a thing. And so, uh, so just give it some thought. And, you know, if you're in a situation where you do want to file the grievance or do the loss or whatever it is, think like Paul the Apostle would and say, now how would this, for, you know, how can I really use this to further the gospel as well? And so invoke your rights, but do it in a way that uh, points people to Christ. Amen.